0: Hey, there's a declaration we've used in the past. We haven't used it for a while, but I want to start with it today, okay? Some of you will remember this to others. It might be brand new, but what I'll do is I'll I'll say a phrase, and then we'll all say it together, okay? So the first part of it is this. This is a great day, okay? With me? This is a great day, and then God is doing great things in me and through me today, okay? God is doing great things in me and through me today. And the third is this. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. And, and I do pray that, Father, let this be a day of victory, a day of breakthrough in every, every person's life in this room. And Lord, let it extend out in ripple effect to, to uh, Everybody within our circle of influence, one, two, three, four, five, six layers out, Lord, impact people's lives through what happens here today in this room. And Holy Spirit, we just, we welcome your presence here. We invite you to be our teacher today, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today's message is going to be on the biblical view of sex. All right. All right, I was waiting for some response there. <clears throat> I am going to be as straightforward as is necessary. So if you have a small child with you that has an attention span and is able to listen, you might want to take them to kids' church. Or, or maybe just prepare for a great conversation later this <laughs> afternoon, okay? Either one, it's up to you, it's up to you. But um, we're going to talk about the origin of sex, and the fact that it was God's idea in the first place. And that, that the, the basic premise when we say God invented sex is this. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. It's not something to be embarrassed about. There's no shame around it. It is a good thing. And in fact, within the bonds of marriage, when a couple engages on a regular basis in sexual intimacy uh, with tenderness it actually bonds their hearts together in a way that nothing else can. And uh, casual sex outside marriage can't do that, but it it is something that actually draws the couple together and it actually imprints physiologically on the brain the other person as well. So there's an emotional component as well as a physiological uh, component. Now, for any in the room who are single, I just want to address, I just want to speak to you for a moment uh, and, and say if you're single but you want to get married uh, then, um, boy, I'm, all, I'm with you. I pray that God will fulfill that desire in your heart and I, I pray hope for you that you will you will find the person God has for you. Now, I don't believe in this idea of soulmate, that there's one person out there. That's that that's part of Greek, Greek thinking. It's not a biblical concept. But I do believe God will lead you to the right person. And some advice I got uh, when I was single was, rather than trying to find the right woman, this older man told me, he said, you should be focusing on becoming the right man. Okay. So whether woman or man, that was good advice 48 years ago. I'll tell you what, it's still good advice today. Second thing that uh, was shared with me that was really gave me hope and, and, and encouraged my heart was, That god didn't create adam and eve and then drop them off 20 miles apart in the wilderness and say okay adam she's out there eve he's out there go find them maybe give him a compass or something no he didn't do that (laughs) he created adam then eve and he brought them together he presented them to each other and so when i heard that i just said okay god i'm putting all my eggs in that basket you're the one that's going to present my future wife to me. And I'm not the one that's going, to, uh, you know, to, that's going to do the work to find her. I'll keep my eyes open and be ready when you're ready. And that's exactly what God did. If I had time to tell you that story, you would agree with me. But um, some, some here might be single, but you were married at one time. And the, the, the whole topic of sexuality might just be painful for you. Uh, the, the marriage ended, and, and it, it, might, it might be painful for you to think about that. And if that's the case, I just want to say we love you, and uh, we just encourage you to find rest and peace in the Lord. But uh, there are other, others here, married couples, in fact, that I wouldn't be surprised if hearing the topic today makes you a little nervous or a little anxious. Uh, and, it, uh, it, and it might bring some discomfort to your heart because of difficulty in this whole area in y- your marriage personally. And if that's the case, then again, I just want to say hope. There is hope. There is healing. Absorb the truth that I'm going to share with you today from the Bible and allow that to become your new way of looking at The whole sexual relationship and I want to say there is healing and there is hope and you can enter into whole new levels of joy in your sexual relationship with your spouse now back to the singles I I wanted to say this I missed it but being married is not the only way to live a fulfilling life okay it's not the only way to, to have meaning in life in fact we need to recognize Jesus himself was single And he was the most impactful, meaningful human being that ever set foot on this planet. And the Apostle Paul even talks about the benefit, uh, that there are benefits to being single in, in this world and with all of the pain and uncertainty in the world. And so I don't want to present to you that that's the only way you can be fulfilled. But for those who have that desire, we pray that that desire will be fulfilled for you. And for those who are married, we pray that this message will uh, open up whole new vistas of, of understanding for you. Now throughout this series, it's going to last four weeks, um, we're going we're to look at it from three different uh, viewpoints. The first one is the worldly viewpoint, and by that I'm referring to what uh, the Apostle Paul calls the, the spirit of this age, this fallen age and if you're here much you know that that uh, we believe in kingdom theology which maintains that there is this fallen age which has proceeded ever since the time of adam and eve but since jesus came god has overlapped this with the kingdom of god and so the fallen evil age is still here but the kingdom is now here as well and so this fallen evil age still has tremendous influence in the way we look at things and our belief systems and the way we approach crucial issues and areas of life. And uh, then there is the religious view and finally the kingdom view. But I'm going to just give you a snapshot of the worldly view, okay? Uh, There's so many different facets to it, so many different things you could say. But I just want to say this. The worldly view about sexuality is that sexual desire is simply an appetite. It's just a human appetite. And as such, it can be satisfied any way the individual wants to satisfy it. It's kind of like thinking of food and hunger. Physical hunger is an appetite. Whether you satisfy that with uh, with a hamburger or with spaghetti and meatballs is up to you. And so this viewpoint would say that, uh, h- however it is it is satisfied, that's up to the individual. It's it makes no difference. It's no more different then two people ordering a hamburger, one with ketchup and onions and the other with mustard and relish. No, no distinction there whatsoever. And so it can be satisfied within the marriage relationship. It can be satisfied with one unmarried with a married person. It can be satisfied with two people of the same uh, gender or sex. It can be satisfied with a prostitute. Uh, on and on and on the list goes. That, that is kind of the worldly perspective of sexuality today. And has been for many generations now the religious view is and by religion I mean man's ideas about God the ideas we come up with about God about what makes God happy not from the Bible not not true spirituality but just our ideas about God And, and so from the religious viewpoint They would, the the religious viewpoint would, has through the centuries often taken the perspective that sexual intercourse is simply for procreation. It's just for procreation. That's it. In fact, at one point, uh, leaders, uh, sad to say within the church in church history, taught that when a couple has sexual intercourse, the Holy Spirit leaves the room. You hear that? Holy Spirit, he's embarrassed. He leaves the room when this (laughs) happens, you know. (laughs) He's out of here. And so the advice was close the door and don't do this any more than is necessary to populate the world. Have babies, but apart from that, you know, stay away from this. You know, I'm going to show you that that's, that's worldly wisdom in the guise of spiritual language. Okay, that's also a worldly view, actually. And then a combination of worldly and religious would be that, um, and I don't think this is as much today with with all of the things that have opened up culturally, but a worldly slash religious view would be that it's mainly for the man. Yeah, the man's the one who gets most of the pleasure out of this, and the woman, she provides it for him, the husband and the wife. And so I'm going to show you that that's a ridiculously unbiblical view as well. Now, the kingdom view, or the biblical view, we're referring to as the kingdom view, is that God created sex and sexual expression and sexual intercourse. And it is for procreation, but it is also intended for the pleasure of the married couple it's intended for the intimate expression of love between the man and the woman within the bounds of marriage. And when engaged in, in that context with tenderness and with love, it has a tremendous effect on deepening their relationship. And over the years, it just has this tremendous effect on drawing them together. And so let's, let's just look at some of the things the Bible uh, says about this. First of all, uh, this thought that God invented sex. It was God's idea. Genesis 1, verses 27 to 28. I'm going to refer to several key passages today, so we're not going to stand up and read it together. But it is going to come up on the screen. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. It says this. This is Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image. Okay, God created mankind in his image. And then it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase or multiply in number and fill the earth. So mankind is male and female. The image of God, to be fully expressed, it takes male and female, these two genders. God created two genders, male and female. And for those that are unmarried, it, it, this doesn't mean you have to be married to express the image of God. You have to be in community. You have to be in community where there are people from, from uh, both males and females in that community. It takes both to fully express the uh, image of God. He commands them to fill the earth with image bearers. That was God's intent. Fill the earth with image bearers. That's part of his plan so that anytime God looked at the face of the earth, he could see himself. You know, there's nothing... How many of you have children or grandchildren and someone has at one point in time said, oh, he looks like you? Yeah. Doesn't, that does something for your heart, doesn't it? You like, we like that. Well, it does something for God's heart too. He wanted to be able to look at the earth and anywhere he looked, his image would be there all over the place. That was God's intent. That's why he created, he created Adam and Eve for that as a purpose. And, and having children, of course, means sex, sexual intercourse. Now, in the creation, in Genesis 1, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. He creates the earth. He, and, and periodically it stops and says, and God looked at what he had done and said, it is good. After every day, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then finally he comes to uh, verses 27 and 28, where he creates man and, and, and mankind, in the, male and female, In his image tells them have lots of sex so there could be lots of babies and fill this earth fill this planet and then he looks at it and he says this is very good okay you get that say with me very good okay very good all right so God gives us his intent and his blessing on the whole thing when he said this is very good and chapter 2 interestingly, in Hebrew thinking and and storytelling, recounting of events, that you oftentimes get a synopsis. And then, then they tell the story again, but they go into more detail in a couple of different areas than they did the first time they tell the story. And so that's what happens in Genesis 2. And so in Genesis 2, as we move on, verse 14, here God gives us some of the details that he left out of chapter 1. And in, in Genesis 2, Adam is created first, and God tells him to name all the animals, and so Adam is naming the animals, and they're all coming by in pairs. There are two. There's a Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, there's a Mr. and Mrs. Muskox, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. But so Adam sees this and he's saying, Hey, there's no Mrs. A- Mrs. Adam. You know, there, I, I have no counterpart. And God looks at it and God says this in verse 14. The Lord God said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this word alone indicates that one of the reasons God created us sexually was to solve the issue of aloneness. Now, the Bible does say later in the New Testament, Jesus even says there's a gift some receive of celibacy where they are able, they're able to be totally fulfilled single, and, and so that can happen. But the, the natural kind of like flow of things here would be that God doesn't want us to be alone. And even in that case, when someone can live unmarried joyfully and fully fulfilled, they still have friends, so they're not alone. But here, God says, I will create a helper suitable for him. Now, first of all, that word helper, it sounds almost like it's demeaning the woman. It's kind of like you have the expert and you have the helper. You know, you have the fully bonded person here, they've gone through all the training, and then you got this helper who doesn't really know how to do much except kind of like hand nails and grab tools and pass them on at the right moment. And But that's not what the word means at all. This word, most often it is used in the Old Testament, most often of God helping Israel when Israel is in trouble, particularly militarily, when they have an an enemy coming at them and it says God helped them. Now, does that mean that Israel was the expert and God is the lowly helper? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, the Hebrew word itself means military ally. And you don't want a military ally that's weak. You don't want a military ally ally that is not very smart. You want a military ally that's as strong as you, or maybe even stronger. You want a military ally that that has all the characteristics of faithfulness and loyalty and that, but you want someone who is strong and smart and wise as a military ally, because you're going to get in trouble, Adam, and you're going to need someone to come in and save the day. Wives, how many of you can say amen to that? Okay. (laughs) I know you can, so I, I just want to point that out: that um, it's not boss and subordinate; they are equals in essence. Uh, different ways of looking at life. There's no question. Brains are, are function differently. Different ways of communicating. Da, is that right? <laughs> and uh, different roles in marriage, but equal in essence and strength and wisdom and and everything else. And so, but he says this woman this. This one I make for him is going to be suitable for him. That word suitable means corresponding to him. Or uh, you, could, you could say like a matched set. They're going to be a matched set. And so he creates Eve. She has two eyes like Adam, two ears, a nose, and a mouth. She has a neck, shoulders, two arms with two hands and five fingers on each. She walks on two legs. And really, if you just glanced at him, you'd say... Well, they're pretty much the same. Now there were two physical differences. One, Eve had breasts that, that were much larger than Adam's. And the second physical difference comes about in the area of the abdomen. And um, it's hard, hard to figure out how to describe this in a tactful way. <laughs> So Adam's abdomen has a um, a protrusion. <laughs> there is something that protrudes from his body, all right? And Eve's abdomen area has an opening into her body. And so they are identical except for those couple of differences, which means they fit together like puzzle pieces, so that they are one, not only in the essence of their hearts and minds and spirits being committed to each other, but this sexual thing God creates so that they can come together and just like puzzle pieces, they just snap right together, and they fit together. And so, as you go on in Genesis 24... It, uh, it, it goes on further. In Genesis 24 and uh, 25 actually is this. Right up to that point, Adam is speaking. And when God, God brings Eve to Adam, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so you know he was thinking about this as he's seeing all the animals go by. Oh, okay, this one is like me. But there's a Hebrew word at the beginning of that sentence that they normally don't translate, but it would be probably the equivalent in English of Wow. So say wow with me, okay? Wow. That's what Adam said when he saw Eve for the first time. This one, this one, she's like me. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then Moses comes in. Moses is writing this, of course, and he's writing what God revealed to him. But at this point, Moses steps in and he makes a statement that applies to his culture of his day. And he says this he says, based on that, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I pondered long and hard, why does it only say to Adam, he's the one that has to leave his mother or father? Well, in Moses' day, the wife always left her family and joined the husband's family. That's the way it was. She left her clan and became part of the husband's clan. So that was a given. But this husband, he's still living there right down the street from mom and dad. And what this is saying is, husband, mom is no longer the center of your life. You better get used to that. Dad is no longer the center of your life. Your wife is now the center of your life. Cleave to her. And the guys had to hear that. And I'll tell you what, a lot of guys have to hear that today, okay? If it ever comes down to something between your mom and your wife, you better come down on the side of your wife, graciously and gently and lovingly towards mom, but your wife better know she's first. And that's basically what, what he is saying here, because the wife has already left her family and her home to join the, this new clan. But then it says one flesh, certainly that refers to more than just, The physical physical act of sex, but it does include that. It does include that. John White, an author and a psychologist, psychiatrist who was friends with the Vineyard for many years, he said this. He said, we are such physical creatures that one who accepts my body and shares with me theirs touches my soul with a deep and uniting tenderness. Casual encounters can't produce the life-giving and healing nature of sex within a committed and tenderly held marriage. And so this whole concept is reaffirmed here by Moses. And then he points out, and the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Now Adam's writing into a culture that has gotten used to wearing clothes and, and hiding. And Adam and Eve, of course, when they did sin, they covered up and they they covered their loin area because they had sinned, they felt shame, and the area that, that that they covered was this this private area that what we call your private area today and so what that indicates is that god didn 't tell them to do that; they just did that, but they intuitively sensed the centrality of sexuality to their relationship as in marriage and to God's plan and purpose for the world. They just intuitively recognized that, and so they they covered it up. And what that means today is that, yeah, we wear clothes, but there's one relationship where you can be totally exposed. As John White said, there's one relationship where you can be seen completely, fully for who you are, and know that you are accepted completely and fully, just as you are, and that is within the marriage relationship, and uh, in particularly in this context, in a broad sense, the sexual relationship of husband and wife. So other places in the Bible are very direct about the beauty of sex. Uh, Proverbs five, eighteen and 19 says this: it says, "Let your fountain this is an older man talking to his son." Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. All right, this idea of let your fountain be blessed, the fountain refers to the fountain of life. And, and he, it, it is the, it's, the sexual, it's the sexual organs of, a, of the man. And he calls that your fountain. And we know that because the next thing he says is, don't ever go to a prostitute. he says, be satisfied. Love your wife. Delight in her. And you look at these words like, rejoice in the, in, in the wife of your youth. And if you want to be blessed, rejoice in the wife of your youth. She's beautiful. She's still beautiful. Let her breasts always fill you at all times with Delight. And the word intoxicated, be intoxicated always in her love. And so it's just such a strong uh, statement about the sexuality between a husband and a wife. And really, it's also a very clear picture of sexual joy and pleasure into old age. Okay, if you're very young, you might think, what? But no, this has, it doesn't end when you hit 50 or 60 or 70, okay? It's the wife of your youth you're rejoicing, and now it changes, gets better, but it doesn't, it doesn't end. Now, in some cases, I've, I've had friends who had debilitating illnesses where their whole body and system's totally depleted, and, and there was no, so, no sexual intercourse between them because they were both totally depleted, but that, that's, that's not the norm. That's not, that's not, the, that's not what is the, the way God intended it to be. Now, let's look at the Song of Solomon. There's some great passages in this book. But for one thing, the whole idea that this is mostly for the man is totally debunked by the Book of Song of Solomon. Because in this Song of Solomon, the woman is talking about her lover husband more than the man talks about his wife and how much he loves her. So over and over again, she's talking about how he turns her on. Man, you look at, look at his hair, look at his physique, Look at his eyes. Uh, you know, aren't all of you turned on by him? He's so wonderful. He's so beautiful. He's so great. And so the, uh, the woman in, in Psalm of Solomon 113 says, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh. A sachet would be like a little bag of myrrh. Myrrh was a perfume that lies between my breasts. Okay, picture that. And you picture, okay, the husband is lying there with her. And she's, she's saying, you're just, you're just like this beautiful, aromatic thing in my life that I, I love so much and I gain so much comfort and joy and pleasure with. But then the husband says to the wife, he says, how beautiful. This is in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. That first verse was Song of Solomon 1, 13. In the case of any of you wanted to write the proverb down, that's Proverbs five eighteen and 19. But now Song of Solomon 7, 1 through 3. He says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals? This is the husband speaking to the wife. O oh, prince's daughter, the curve of your hips are like jewels. The curves of your hips are like jewels. The work of the hands of an artist. God's an artist, the way he created Eve, the way he created womankind. Your navel is like a round goblet that never lacks mixed wine. That's a little bit weird, but uh, <laughs> I, you know. I don't know. He likes, her, he likes her belly button. He likes her navel for some reason. But then this next one I really don't get. He says, your belly is like a heap of wheat. I mean, I'm picturing, you know, a, a heap doesn't make sense, does it? I'm just guessing there's a better way to translate that. I didn't look into it, though, okay? But then listen to this. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Man, those breasts of yours, honey. Those are sweet. That's what he's saying. Another place where the man's talking to the woman, he says, um, your breasts are like clusters of, uh, oh, clusters of, uh, what, what's the fruit they eat? Grapes. Not grapes, no. Figs. Cl- clusters of, of figs on, on, a, on, a, on a tall fig tree. And then he says, I'm going to climb that tree, and I'm going to touch those clusters. (laughs) So uh, the Bible is not embarrassed by this, okay? It's just not embarrassed by this. It's just reality. And so it... uh (laughs) But this next one, um, next, Song of Solomon 5. That last one was uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. This one is chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, okay? You're going to be amazed what this says. This is the wife talking about her husband. She starts at the top of his head and works her way down. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. She loves his dark hair. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water. She loves his his blue eyes, I'm assuming. His lips are like... his lips are lilies. Aren't lilies beautiful? She said, your lips, they remind me of lilies. And they're dripping with liquid myrrh. You know, some of you wise might want to start using some of this language. You think? I mean, I could use a little bit of encouragement like that, I suppose, as a man. I'm sure you women could, too. But then here we, here we go. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. All right, that word, carved ivory. There is no translation that will translate what that word means. Do you remember the word I used earlier? What was it? Protrusion, yes. There was a protrusion from Adam's abdomen. And where does ivory come from? Who knows, come on everybody. Everybody say it, elephants. What do elephants have that are made of ivory? tusks, okay? You're saying tusks. So, are you getting the picture here yet? <laughs> so, are you getting the picture here? Your, uh, your abdomen is like a, an ivory what? What? Come on, let's hear it, everybody. Your, your abdomen, we're going to break through the religious spirit today, okay? Your abdomen is like an ivory... All right good. Honestly, I'm a little bit surprised it was so easy to get you all to say that here in church. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So uh, it's clearly uh, sexual intimacy is a clear part of the marriage covenant. In fact, marriage itself, the one thing that can break the covenant in both the Old and New Testament, um, well, more, more than just this one thing, but adultery breaks the marriage covenant. In fact, well, here in, um, well, let, let's, let's, let's start with that in Deuteronomy 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house. All right, this worked both ways. They just say it with the man. but this word indecency in her is another word they won't translate literally it means like a, a sexual indecency a nakedness that has broken the marriage covenant and, and so it's referring to an, an adulterous um type of a thing that she has committed and or that he would be have committed and it's so important that it that it allows for the ending of the marriage relationship. Now it's not just I don't love him anymore or I don't love her anymore. It's not that. It's not just we can't get along. No, you can get along. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, why not? It but it is if there is a breaking of this covenant, which sexual intimacy is part of such a part of the covenant that 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 can is cause for divorce. Now in Exodus twenty one, ten and eleven um, it says a man who's married, if he marries another woman, in those days you could have multiple wives. I can't in, imagine why anybody would want multiple wives. Are you guys, anybody, me? it's hard enough communicating with one wife to me. I've learned how over the years, but it's taken me years to learn how. So, And, and I'm so thankful for my wife. Why, uh, okay, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> that was all ad-libbed. I should just rewind it and stop. Okay. Okay, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, or marital rights. Marital rights means conjugal rights. It means sexual rights. So if he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. She owes him nothing. He has no grip on her, no hold on her. So these three things, food, clothing, and marital rights, conjugal rights, are a cause for the woman to divorce the husband. Now, in the New Testament, and, and all, the only reason I say that is not to not really—I'm not giving a full picture of divorce here by any means, or what we th- think about divorce here by any means. I'm just saying that it is so important to marriage itself. That's all I'm trying to illustrate with that. Now, in the New Testament, um, Hebrews thirteen four says this: it says, "Marriage is to be held in honor by all, and the marriage bed kept pure." And that means husband and wife only in the marriage bed. It's kept pure. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, here we read this. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. His conjugal duty is what it means in this context. And likewise, the wife also to her husband. And then he says this. Here's why. He says, when you got married, do you know what? You gave yourself to the other person. He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the three things here, there is what I would call the principle of need, both need sexual intimacy, the husband and the wife, they both do. Uh, the principle of authority, neither ultimately have authority over their own bodies. But this does not allow for abuse or uh, control or force. All it means is, I recognize I need to freely give myself to my wife. And my wife recognizes that according to God's order, she, she, to, to honor God, she freely gives herself to her husband. But it's not saying like the husband can say, hey, now, or or whatever. Anything, nothing abusive like that is being approved of with this. The third thing is this, the principle of habit. They are commanded to be intimate sexually on a regular basis. That's a command from God. And so it is part of the marriage relationship, just like we're to talk and to listen to each other, just like we should pray together, we should honor each other in so many other ways. This is one of the ways that we honor our spouse, is by coming together in sexual intimacy on a consistent, regular basis. And so I'm just going to ask the question, so what, as we, as we conclude this all? The so what of this all is this. God made our bodies, including the sexual parts, and it is called very good. All right? Some of us might need to have our minds renewed with this. There might be some lingering thing that my mother or my father said to me or or someone else, something that happened in my past, and I need to to excise that from my thinking and put this new truth in, have my mind renewed. God designed our nervous systems and ability to experience incredible pleasure. That's for both the man and the woman. God did that. God gave us sex for procreation, yes, to have children, to fill the earth with image bearers, but also to be enjoyed with the within the lifelong commitment of marriage, both wife and husband enjoying the sexual relationship. God commands us forth as husbands and wives to have a regular, consistent, ongoing into old age giving of oneself to the other freely. In sexual intimacy, and fifth, this bonds a couple's hearts together and creates a deeper love that they have for each other, as well as just this whole physiological bonding that that takes place and you know you, you, we 've we've, we've all heard the phrase "lovemaking making love what well, what do you think it means other than it produces love i I never thought of that until I did this message, but Love making the sexual intimacy, produces greater intimacy and love between husband and wife. Again, when it's entered into with respect and honor and tenderness. And so, with these, with these in mind, um, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray for a few different things. And then Jim's going to come up and end um, and the service, or come up and participate in this minister time if, if he has something. But I'm going to pray first for renewed minds. Okay, and so if you need that, just um, just just prepare to receive let's everybody just hold your hands out as if you're going to receive something from God right now. so first of all, I pray, Holy Spirit, you are the one who renews our minds, and I, I feel led to pray this. I pray for a wiping out of maybe early sexual experiences, uh, maybe people that saw pornography at a young age or heard. Jokes told in elementary school that still kind of shade the view of sexuality as being pure and beautiful. I pray, Holy Spirit, just to excise those out of our minds right now. Take those memories out. Take their power away in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, bring healing there. And bring right thoughts, right beliefs about our sexuality that there's nothing to be embarrassed about within this bond of husband and wife and the total intimacy that we experience, nothing nothing to, to um, shy away from it's a joyful thing that you created for us to enjoy. And I pray that that would be, j- just fill our minds with that truth and renew our minds with that truth, Father. I pray, Father, for any who need to forgive their spouse right now or a former spouse or someone else in their background, brother, uncle or whoever. I pray, Holy Spirit, for just dealing very tenderly with those hearts and the deep wounds that are there. A former wife, deep wounds that are there. Let's bring healing to those hearts, God. Heal. Holy Spirit, release healing right now restoration grace to forgive to leave it behind because Jesus you are you are the one who, who heals our hearts for any who struggle with inadequacy or failure or shame because it hasn't gone well I pray for a new sense of hope new sense of freedom in understanding the depths of your joy in giving us this great gift, Father. And I pray for freedom from past wounds, inadequacy, failure, shame, and new hope, hope for the future. And Father, any that went too far before marriage, I just ask in Jesus' name, you break that off right now and free them from any soul ties that were formed prior to marriage with another person that they didn't end up marrying or with their spouse, Lord. If if they went too far before marriage, just uh, bring freedom from that, from guilt and shame. There, Jesus, you died for that, and we know that that just washes away with your blood. So freedom, there, Lord.